talking with a doctor I met the other day. I don't know exactly how it came up, but it came up about, you know, becoming a disciple and friends and associations that you have to change to make it in life. I don't remember the exact saying. He said it to me. Uh, when people are trying to beat an addiction, they have to change friends and places and um, interest or something like that. Love, what they love. If you're going to beat an addiction, you got to change your friends. And you have to change your affections, what you want to do. Now, I thought about that. It's generally true. That is true about becoming a Christian. So I'm going to talk about the cost of becoming a Christian because it's often presented when you hear the gospel presented in the way that it is so often in the media and other places. And we even sing a song, Only a Step. And some people object to that song because there's more to becoming a Christian than just a step. And yet I see the truth of the song. It doesn't take much to change from being outside of Christ to inside of Christ. But what that change does is immense. That one step is immense in the implications. And what it requires of you is immense. I've often heard me quote saying that basically said, that says that it doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian. It just takes all there is of him. And that's true. So there is a cost to this. So the, pre, the, the popular idea that if you just say this little prayer in your heart, and you'll be saved, and that's all you got to do the rest of your life. Just say this little prayer in your heart, and go on your bed. You, God gives you eternal life then, and it's all basically over. And that's reflected sometimes in the way those same people live after that event. They go on living just like they did because they think they've been forgiven. They make no changes in their life at all, and sometimes they become even worse. But there's a cost to becoming a Christian. I want to talk with you about that today a little bit in this way. Go over to Luke 14. We're going to read part of that passage. The real context goes from this verse in verse 25 all the way through verse 33. But for sake of time, we're not going to read all of that. We may come back to some of the end of that a little bit later in the sermon. But he says, Now great multitudes, it says, went with him, and he turned and said to them. Now, in the world where they picture Jesus as this popular leader and he's trying to gather crowds up he's going to start a revolution he's going to change everything he wants everybody to follow him so now the crowds are starting to follow jesus if you follow the worldly way of thinking about this he would turn to the crowd and encourage them thank them for following and encourage them like politicians do doesn't do that at all this is why you know this is real if anyone comes to me Look at this big crowd. Anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Cannot. Other verses say he will not be my disciple. That's true. Jesus here is much more blunt. He cannot be my disciple. He can go on and call himself my disciple, I'll add. The world can think he's my disciple, but unless he's willing to do these things, he cannot be my disciple. At any juncture along the way, when presented with the choices of mothers, fathers, sisters and brothers and children and wives, any point 
where he has to make the choice between Jesus Christ and these other relationships. If he doesn't choose the Lord, he cannot be Christ's disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So being a Christian is going to cost you something. It, and Jesus is up front clearly in his early in his ministry about this very fact. This isn't just a matter of following a popular politician or other social leader, whatever the case may be, and in basking in the enjoyment and making a few simple changes about actualizing yourself and reaching your full potential and whatever other jargon we could use. Being a Christian is something different than that. And so when you go back and look at this, if anyone does not comes to me and does not hate his father. Now, lexicographers will tell you that the word hate here doesn't mean animosity toward. It doesn't mean have animosity and enmity like we think. It means to love less. It's a word of priority or evaluation. Loving less, although in other passages it's not expressed that way, I will have to tell you, but probably here it does mean this is a restacking of all of your priorities. Now, I know many people, I've known many people over the years, who hear the truth of the gospel about becoming just a New Testament Christian. They know exactly what the Bible says to do. They know what they ought to do, but they will not do it because it would offend their family. It would offend their mother, their father. It would offend their ethnic relationships. If I left the Catholic Church, I would no longer be Italian. Or Polish. One fellow told me he couldn't do it because he would no longer be Polish if he did not, was not a Catholic. This is what this is talking about. I told him that. This is what this is talking about. Are you willing to stop being Polish to become a Christian? Are you willing to stop being an American? Someday it's going to maybe be that choice to be a Christian. Father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life. He has to hate his own life. He has to love it less than serving the Lord. Difficult thing. So many things that Jesus has said as I become an old man, uh, they're so so much more challenging than I thought they were, even though I thought I understood them when I was younger. So much more challenging to hate your own life. We're not taught that at all in our culture, to hate our own life, see. And so there is this restacking of your present affections. Our present desires, affections that we have, things that we are attached to, we have to be willing to hate them and to love them less. That's why the scriptures say in Colossians chapter 3, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Now, here I really think that the King James may catch the point a little bit better. The King James says, set your affections on things above. I have the new King James projected up here, but I think the King James catches. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. And so... This probably goes with the next point, but I'll bring it up here. We're, we're told, and I, I took college classes on this. We're told that what we have to do to become a real human being is experience self-actualization. 
We have to go through the process on Maslow's scale of uh, being, and we have to become self-actualized. So people spend their time trying to become self-actualized. You probably had classes on this. In other words, we have to find time to to we have to figure out how to live our best life now. To phrase a popular preacher, we have to figure out uh, you know how to find ourselves. Well, instead of self-actualization, that is the process of defining and thinking about and meditating upon your own goals, what you really want out of life. Do any of these catchphrases sound familiar to you? What you really want out of life, what you really are trying to accomplish, resetting all of that. And this is common in among preachers to teach you this, that this is what your goal in life is to be. Jesus tells you, that you have to set your affection not on self-actualization or any of the other buzzwords, but on self-sacrifice. That's a whole different thing, isn't it? Self-sacrifice. Uh, try preaching a, the, around the country today in a mega church that this is all really about self-sacrifice and dying to yourself. How's that going to work? Not well. It will cease to be a mega church. Okay, if, if properly preached, that mega church will cease eventually to be a mega church if you preach self-sacrifice, according to the Bible, where everybody else comes first. In fact, we are explicitly told, especially females, you cannot put everybody before yourself. You must put yourself first. In fact, we have popular singers singing the only real love is learning to love yourself. Trouble with those things, they sound nice and, and uh, they're sweet to the ear, but they do not represent the gospel. And I think I'm not even being unfair in my application, trying to be fair. I think that they do not represent the gospel. Uh, finding yourself. I got to go find myself. Now, if I told you before, what when a woman leaves her husband to go find herself, where she usually finds herself is predictable. She finds herself in some other man's bed. That's where she finds herself. And so that's how that works. Or goes the other way, too. We find ourselves in another world where we can live like we want to. That's what finding yourself is often about. doesn't have to be, but that's what it often is. What is finding yourself? Jesus says, unless you lose yourself, you cannot be my disciple. You have to lose yourself. Meaning that you have to slowly crucify the things that you want to do in life and substitute for those things, the things that Christ would have you to do based on actual love, that is what's done for the benefit of others, actual self-sacrifice of your passions and desires for the benefit of Christ and other people. That's what's required of you. How many people really want to do that? Well, not many. And that's why Jesus is confidently can confidently say that the gate is straight and the way is narrow and few there are that find it, because what Jesus requires, and that's why he turns to the audience and tells them this. The people that are, he tells them this. This is not what you're thinking, probably, most likely. It's something different than that, because it's not about finding yourself, it's about losing yourself. We're told today the main thing in life is just to be happy. Be happy. Well, and that, that's that's so faulty on several levels, even on a psychological level, it's faulty. You cannot, when you seek happiness, you very you can't find it. It's the one you. The more you seek it, the less you're able to find it. Happiness is not the thing you can seek. Happiness is a byproduct of seeking other things. When you seek the right things, a byproduct of that is happiness. 
But we want to short circuit that and just seek the happiness. And that's why so many people get caught up in the short circuits of drugs and alcohol and addictions because they're short circuiting the process. But they're trying to find happiness. Jesus says instead of that, what you ought to be is a servant. He who is greatest in the kingdom is the one who is servant of all. That's the greatest one. So to be a Christian, you have to lose your present affections, the desire to be happy, that your happiness is everything. People leave their families of 15, 20, leave their spouses. I saw a video the other day of a woman who had left her, she left her high school sweetheart, knew each, were sweethearts in high school after 20 years because she said she wasn't just, wasn't happy with herself and her situation. And now she's complaining because all the guys she's meeting just don't satisfy her. Just don't. The dating world is terrible. How many older women, my grandmothers and mothers ages, could have probably told her that without even leaving her husband, that when you're 40-something, when you're 40-some years old now, the dating market is terrible. She thinks it's going to be like she was in high school. You know, that men are just going to fall over themselves or all choice plums. All the choice plums are married, and you probably had one. But he wasn't making you happy today. You weren't actualized. You weren't finding yourself. Because you had swallowed the whole lie that life is about that. You know, anyway, and men do the same thing. Men do exactly the same thing with their sports cars and the younger model and so forth. They trade in their 40-year-old wife for two 20-year-olds, you know, the old joke. Jesus says, this life is not... And then the whole another whole generation has arisen that doesn't really believe in marriage and dating and pursuing happiness in their in that direction. Because the truth is, marriage takes a a tremendous amount of self-sacrifice and self-denial and lots of other things. It takes so many of those things at its very core. Getting some medical tests done the other day, and so the young woman, I say young, when you're 70, most people are young. I found that the vast majority of the population is young to you. How old do you think she was, Judy? 30? Eh, 30-ish. So she's very young, a child. And, uh, and so she figures out from our paperwork that I've been married for 48 years plus. And so she wants to know what the secret is. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> I'm laughing because it really isn't a secret. When I said, well, first of all, um, honey, that, and I thought, uh-oh, I said, honey, that's no good. That's a sexist insult, misogynistic, patriarchal insult to her. So I had to rephrase that. I said, well, um, it's commitment. My wife was only 17 or so, barely turned 18 when she committed herself to me and I committed myself to her for the rest of our life. And she looked at me. Hmm. Are you actually from Mars? Or are you what planet are you from? More or less. And then we went, and I talked to her some more about some things that we said early on. We promised each other and we sold each other early on, which were about self-denial and, and, and communication. And so 
I think she got a little bit of that, and I forgot where I was going with the story now, except to say that she, I think she just didn't know what to do with it. And I finally said to her, well, here's the thing, here's the thing, that I, I wish I had known this even myself. According to God, marriage is not about making you happy. Marriage is about making you a better person. That's what it's about. And if you approach it that way, that it's about you becoming a better person because of the self-sacrifice you have to endure to live with somebody else, then you'll discover the secret. Okay, the secret. Okay. Then she says, I like you. I thought, well, I'm not available. But anyway. There's such a market for crippled 70-year-old men with bad health, isn't there? Anyway, no, young people today, they they don't necessarily believe in marriage, but they do believe in their causes, environmentalism, other forms of activism. They, They believe in those, and they don't believe in following Christ. They believe in their social causes, and they're very passionate about those. They don't believe in what the sacrifices it takes to be married to somebody but they will sacrifice themselves for this cause, this environmentalist cause or whatever the case may be. I saw this hilarious video the other day. This overweight Finnish comedian. I mean, what are the odds of somebody, what are the odds of finding a comedian in Finland? I mean, that's got to be low to start with. But he comes to America, he's learning the English language. And he says, I met somebody. He says, I meet people. And he says, uh, I meet a lot of vegans. And he says, uh, it's funny. He says, uh, how do I, how, you're asking, how do you know they're vegans? He said, well, because they tell me. He says, hi, my name is, he says, they say, hi, my name is Joe. I'm a vegan. He says, nobody else tells me, but they tell, vegans tell me. He says, I said, well, my name is Ismo and I like sausages. <laughs> he says, I eat a lot of sausages. And he says, I says, don't ever think to tell people when I first meet them that I love sausages and that's my identity. Well, he's right about this. The reason vegans tell you they're a vegan is because it's their reason for living. It's what motivates them. It's what makes them alive, makes them an individual. They're an activist for this, anti-meat activist, you see. Nothing wrong with being a vegan, but, you know, nothing wrong with eating sausages either. Do you lead with that? Only if that's what your affection is. Only if that's what you're really devoted to. So, do you say, hi, my name is Isma, I'm a Christian. You may not want to do that all the time, but that's the problem. Our affections have to be changed, and we have to set our affections on things that are above, you see. Now, the other thing it will cost you, and it's the same thing, really, is being a Christian will cost you the world. It will cost you this world that we live in. Now, I know we've mentioned this before. Jesus says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, but I, and that may be that means the people. But this world that he's using here, that I'm using here, and that James is using in this passage, is the world in a different way. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's that world that you have to give up. In fact, James is clear about this to people that are Christians. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Enmity means it's this world for, it's, just, it's the real world word for hate here. It's the, it's the re, real world, 
word for clash, something that is opposite, that cannot be at the same place and time. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The next time you watch the Grammys or the Oscars or the Emmys or the whatever they are, remember that phrase. Whoever, whosoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. The parade of people that our society bows down and kisses the ring of as a god or goddess wearing almost nothing or some other thing because that God gave them a gift of singing or dancing or acting. We bow down and kiss their rings. These people love the world. They want to be friends with all that. They do these things so that everybody will love them. And we fall into that. You make yourself an enemy of God. When you buy into that whole program of things, that whole value system, you make yourself an enemy of God. When you buy into the system of I'm a good person or I'm an important person because I get so many likes on Facebook or Instagram. Oh, that's for old people, isn't it? Instagram or uh, whatever the others are. Snapchat, you got all the little clicks and likes. This is the value system that people have today. That's how they value themselves, the number of likes and clicks and followers and so forth. And then they can monetize it even. You're becoming friends with the world. This is not how you just... Value. I cannot imagine the men and women that I've known knew growing up that that would be their value system. The number of people that would click on their picture because they could poke their hip out and pout their lips, you know, and that all of a sudden they're a good person. This is a shallow, worldly, sensual value system that's been adapted. And we have to realize that when we make friends with that, When we become friends with that, we're becoming an enemy of God. Do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I want to go back for a second. This this is a kind of a, it seems confusing. Verse five does. I think overall considered it isn't confusing, but what he's Saying is, God made your spirit. He gave you the spirit that you are. He made you. And He yearns jealously for that spirit. He wants you to be devoted to Him. It's a oneness. It's like a man who takes a bride. He's jealous for that bride. Oh, not in some petty Jerry Springer kind of way. Although Jerry Springer used to play up on that natural jealousy that people had for their, uh, for their mate. But he says God yearns for you to be loyal to him. He wants your love and affection. And he's jealous when you give it to these other gods of the world, these other things that call your attention away from him. He's jealous when you do that in that sense. And so therefore, you become an adulterer or adulteress. Not a pretty word at all. I'm not sure what the politically correct term to say is, but he says, and, and it's no surprise to me then, verse 6, links up God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The whole system of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh is a system not of humility, not of self-sacrifice, not of service to others, but of selfishness, self, self, self. 
And so there we are. That's why you become an enemy with the world. You know, Jesus said about his own disciples in John 17, I, when he was praying in the garden, uh, excuse me, he's sitting at, at what we call the Last Supper when he says this. He's sitting at the Last Supper with them and he, he's praying and he says, I have given them, that is in this case the disciples, the apostles, to I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I, I think he's looking into the future and he already sees. He sees even then that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the other real big people in the world, the ones people want to be like, oh, I wish I could be like them. They got power, they got money, they have influence. You know, there were social influencers in Jesus' day. They were Sadducees and Pharisees and priests and scribes. Those were the social influencers of their day, of their day that influenced society and what people thought. These people were the world. And he said, they already, they already hate my disciples. Even though they'd barely just begun their ministry, they already hate them. Because they're not of it. They can sense right away they're not of the world. And I can guarantee you that if you are a devout Christian, worldly people can sense right away that you're not with them. You're not with them. They don't want to be around you. They they make some attempts to convert you. They'll test you to see if you're going to do drugs and drink with them or smoke with them. They'll test you to see if you're going to do those things. But then when you don't, then it falls apart. I told you about my friend. I just found out the other day he passed away. Um, we were traveling together. Big fellow from West Palm Beach. I've, I'd known him for some time. And he has a lot of good qualities. Very smart man. But we were traveling together and we had to stay in him and a couple of the guys to a chicken show. We stayed in a motel and, and we ate it. The other guys said somehow they didn't want to go eat. So we went and ate at the Waffle House or somewhere near the motel. And we got done eating. He says, hey, Mike, he says, I'm heading over to that strip club right there. I want you to go, let's go, go with me over there. Some, I don't know, some kind of strip place near the motel. And I said, Kim, I said, I looked at him. I said, you're married to Peggy. I knew his wife. I, I mean, we, we were friends. I said, you think Peggy is okay with that? Oh, I don't care. I, she's okay with it. Whatever. I, she knows, she knows what she marries, what she's, what he said. I said, well, you know, go ahead. Go, you go on. I'm going to go back to the motel. Well, you know, that's funny. I think about, I was thinking about this after I found out he passed away the other day. Uh, our friendship never went backwards from there. Our friendship just went backwards. Not because of what I said or did. I never, I never mentioned it ever again to him. Never said another word about it to him ever again. Went backwards. Why was that? Because he knew I wasn't in the same world with him. And we were never going to be in the same world. And so it died. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. You should keep them from the evil one. That They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Set them apart by your truth. The word sanctify means to take from this place and put it over here in a special place. Put it over here in a separate place, a special place. Put them over here. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Paul said another place, we got to hurry along here, Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
You can pack a lot in there, but what he's saying is there's nothing in for me to talk about or brag about that I could have ever done except this cross. And the this cross of Jesus Christ that I've accepted as my life, to be crucified with him, to be with him on that cross, that the world's been crucified to me, the world's been put to death, all the desires I would have had before, all those desires for fame, glory, for, uh, fortune, self-actualization, all the other, those contentment, all those things are crucified to me, and I do them. They don't want me, the world doesn't want me, and I don't want them. Do we have that attitude? Hmm. And that's what Paul said in another passage you're probably more familiar with in Romans 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. You lay it on the altar so you're alive. You know, a dead sacrifice, like you used to offer, but a living one. Lay it on the altar, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service from the mind, from the heart, your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed into something different than you once were. Can't be the same. You know, when this figure, even from James 4 and the other passages, picture us being the bride of Christ, married to Christ. So it's a picture of oneness, of the bride and the groom, and as in one love. So when someone gets married, when a man gets married, he's been in love. He's already been in love. Now he is actually in love. So you go from being in love to being in love. So when I uh, do a wedding ceremony, I'll say very, I say something along the lines of, I am not asking you today whether you love each other too late I'm asking you will you love one another will you actually do what love is because that involves literally forsaking everything else from that day on and I stopped those grooms I don't know how many times I've done it in that little room wherever we are before we go out to do the ceremony I'm usually with the groom and his groomsmen and I grab the guy by the arm and I look him in the eye and said are you really you really want to do this I said, now look, he looked at me, well, I said, this is your last chance. I'm, I'm serious. I'm giving you one, I'm giving you one more chance. Do you really want to do this? Well, yeah. I said, now you be sure because I said, look, I said, I know it'd be hard. Don't think about how much the wedding costs or how, don't think about any of that. Think about what you're going to do. What are you going to commit to here? Because I said, I'll go out there and I'll tell her and I'll tell the audience that there's been a change of plans, that you don't want to do this, I'll go tell them. You don't even have to face them. If you don't want to do this, then you're not married yet, and I want you to not do it. Well, she'll be upset. I said, yeah, how upset are you going to be in five years when you do this? You think she's going to be upset today? Go ahead and marry her, then have a couple kids, then tell her you don't love her, don't want to be together. So decide now. And then do that. Come to me if you need help to do it, but do it from that point on. Oh, okay. I never had one take me up on it yet. I'm hoping. 
as many people as get divorced, there's got to be one in there to really figure out what I'm trying to say. But the fact is, this is what Christ says to you, to his people. If you're going to follow me, you've got to give your all to me. You've got to, have to leave the world. You've got to, it's going to cost you something. It may even cost your mother or your father. Are you sure you're ready for this? In this story in Luke 14, in this passage, it won't take the time because we've got to stop here. But he even tells the story about a man trying to build a tower, not, not counting the cause. And so it's partially built. They're going to mock him for partially building it. So you come to Christ and you you find out you really do want to be famous. You really do want to be this. You do really do love other things, including yourself, more than you love the Lord. No, there's a cost to be made, a cost to be paid, I should say, that you have to understand in this case. And so it's going to cost you even your associations. We're going to stop with this, but he says uh, there's a cost. Their brother will deliver up a brother to death. A father with his child, a children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death because they're following Christ. And you'll be hated for all by my, for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Well, we're going to have to stop this morning. I have, I think I did four points in my sermon and we got to one and a half, but maybe that's better than usual, but In Luke 14, he ends this passage by saying, so likewise, after talking about that man who tried to build a tower but didn't really commit himself, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are sobering words. I want you to think about them deeply, what that means. The cost that you have to give up. So many people want to serve the Lord and hold on to, and hold on to what they really want what they really do. And that's why you see so many phony, weak Christians all around the country. They're hypocrites. They're phony. They're weak. They bring shame on the Lord, shame on his name, and on the rest of people who are trying to do well because they've never really committed themselves to him. So thank you for listening today. We're going to stop. And I uh, pray that you'll consider then these things as we sing this last song here of uh, number Excuse me, I've been having so much trouble with my throat this morning. Number 655, we're going to sing now as we close our service. And we pray that you will decide to become a Christian and give up what you've got to give up to serve him. Or if you're a Christian that's walked away and loved something else, you'll decide to really commit yourself to the Lord. We can pray with you about that here on the front row. We can take your confession of belief in Christ this morning and baptize you into Christ this very hour. Everything is ready. If you want, if you, if we can help you in some way, you come right to the front. Let's stand and sing.